0: hi there and welcome to another pacific wayfinder podcast i'm ben Bohain. today's show is part two of a three-part collaboration between the australia pacific security college and the institute for climate energy and disaster management here at the anu in canberra i'm joined once again by the director of ICEDS, professor mark howden a leading climate scientist who is also the Vice-Chair of the UN's Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change, known as the IPCC. You might have heard that just last week, the IPCC released its latest major report, highlighting the urgency for us to deal with climate change as temperatures rise and our oceans become more acidic. The UN Secretary-General himself said it signalled Code Red for Humanity. My other guest today is a Pacific Island climate scientist, Dr. Morgan Wairu, who also contributed to the latest IPCC report. It'll be great to hear from Morgan to get a Pacific perspective on these reports and what inspired him as a Pacific Islander to embark on a career in science. Welcome both of you to the program. Hi, Ben. Thank you. In our last podcast, we discussed what goes into these IPCC reports and what we might expect out of the latest one. Well, last week, the report came out and has received considerable media attention due to its rather sobering message that we are headed for 1.5 degree rise very quickly and that the earth has already warmed 1.1 degrees since 1910. Professor Howden, I've read that the next ten years is really our last chance to remain in the driver's seat in terms of being able to control or manage the Earth's climate system for these tipping points more or less take it out of our hands and our ability to control what happens.
1: Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, thanks Ben. Um there's two main arguments that surround that sort of ten or around about ten years. Um the firstly is that, it's very likely that we'll exceed 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial by the 2030s, and and possibly earlier if we go on a high emissions trajectory. That's if we don't slow down our greenhouse gas emissions. So essentially what we're seeing is potentially breaching 1.5 degrees in that sort of 10 or maybe 12, or maybe even eight years. The second one is in relation to what we call our carbon budget. So this is the amount of greenhouse gases we can produce, we can emit, and still stay within any given temperature, such as 1.5 degrees. And at the moment, given our current rate of greenhouse gas emissions, we've only got around about 10 years to go before we've completely used up that greenhouse gas budget, that carbon budget that's consistent with 1.5 degrees. So there's a couple of different elements there about why people might be talking about 10 years.
0: So, Professor Howden, according to the trajectory that we're currently on, when when would we likely hit that sort of two or even three degrees?
1: At the moment, under our Paris Agreement commitments, those are consistent with heading towards closer to three degrees than two degrees. Unfortunately, many countries aren't actually meeting their Paris Agreement commitments, and so we're actually heading above that rather than below. And so under most circumstances, it's very hard to see us sticking to two degrees at our current emission reduction rates with our current emission reduction uh, commitments.
0: And for you, out of this most recent report, what, what was the key statistic or point for you that emerged from this recent report that that really kind of captures what this report's about?
1: Oh, there's there's probably three main ones. We've already covered one of them, or actually two of them, which are um, the carbon budget and the time to reach 1.5 degrees. One of the other key elements was that the human influence on global climate is unequivocal, like it's, it's a matter of fact rather than a matter of probability. Um, secondly is that the climate changes we've already seen are impacting on climate extremes, and that particularly is a big concern in the Pacific because most of the negative um, impacts happen as a function of climate extremes. And the last one I'll mention is sea level rise. And so uh, we've had updated sea level rises, which includes projections of uh, sea level rise, including some of the less well-known or less well-quantified elements, such as ice sheet breakdown. And so those generate really scary high-end sea level rises, which we might cover later.
0: Yes, I'd like to come back to the sea level rise, because that's obviously a a very important issue for the Pacific. And sometimes between the different findings, you know, I've seen anything from 55 centimetres through to 7 metres. So I think there might be a little bit of confusion around, you know, what it takes to, to get that kind of sea level rise. So... We might come back to that in a minute. I'd like to bring Dr. Wairu in at this point. Um, what for you was the key point that emerged from the report?
2: Well, for 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 the Pacific Islanders and, you know, the Pacific in general, uh, the most important thing is capping the global uh, temperature increase at 1.5 degrees because that's the, the threshold that most of the small island states uh are really wanting to, to keep temperature at, at that level. But uh, what is coming very clear from this report now is uh, we might exceed that in the next 10, 12 years, as Mark has alluded to. And that is very uh, concern for most of the Pacific Island countries because once we ex- exceed the 1.5 degrees threshold, then uh, definitely there will be collapse or impact on the different small island countries, ecosystems, economy, and also livelihood. And that's a very big concern for Pacific Island countries.
0: Can you talk about from your perspective, uh, Dr. Wairu, what do you see as being some of the the real impacts between, say, a a 1.5 degree rise, which is almost inevitable, and then once we move to 2, 2.5, even 3 degrees, what, what's the, the scale of impact if we're looking at the, that kind of range of temperature rise? Well,
2: even at this current temperature regime of just around 1.1, 1.2 that we've been talking about now, uh, there is already a, a big impact in terms of uh, uh, livelihood, uh, health, food security, water security on island populations. So they're already experiencing those impacts now uh, if we continue to increase the temperature uh, range then those impacts will be coming, increasing at a much higher level and that's already a big risk for pacific island countries and uh, at this current rate most pacific island countries and uh, uh, the, their people are already experiencing those impacts and most likely it will be more detrimental to those countries in the future and you know the issue of migration and relocation will be the main uh, ticket item on the, on their agenda.
0: Now for the Pacific, obviously temperature rise is a really you know critical thing, but because we're in the blue Pacific, people really depend on the oceans. Um, how how will these sorts of impacts you know affect the reef system the coral reef system and, and oceans we've got issues around migration of tuna that impacts food security what, what are your real concerns about um, how these temperature rises can affect the oceans
2: yes as you've already mentioned that uh, as the temperature increases and uh, the ocean become uh, warm then you get other impacts like heat waves, ocean heat waves, sea level rise, and uh, storm surges from tropical cyclones. And these are direct threat to people's livelihood. So the biggest risk that we are looking at in the Pacific right now is uh, the risks to habitability of the small islands, as well as disappearance of those small islands. So these are real uh, issues for Pacific Island countries. And uh, these are the things that Pacific Island countries really want uh, to see how, uh, if we can reduce those emissions coming down so that they can save some of those ecosystems.
0: And just to talk a little bit about um, your role in this IPCC report, uh, how, how did you contribute to it?
2: Well I I was part of the special report on the 1.5 as a contributing author you know trying to bring some of the experiences and uh, published materials from the Pacific to inform the report and uh, so now I'm actually coordinating lead author of the the small islands chapter in the particular AR6 report so that in itself is also very crucial for the Pacific because we try to actually uh, inform the report with some of the experiences as well as uh, materials that are relevant to the, to the report to inform our policymakers.
0: So, by taking the lead for the small islands uh, in this particular report, does that cover not just the Pacific but also Caribbean small islands off Africa? What what sort of um you know group of, of islands were you responsible for
2: yes yeah, so the small island chapter in this uh, report covers the Pacific the Indian Ocean Caribbean as well as some of the uh, islands in the small islands in the Mediterranean as well off the coast of Northern Africa so it's quite a ge- geographical spread of small islands and we try to put uh materials that are relevant to small islands to inform the report
0: so what are the sort of things that make, you know, small islands particularly vulnerable in this situation? And, and and in terms of bringing the data together, is there a different way you approach the data for small islands compared to, you know, large land masses?
2: Yes. So our first point of call is really to to search through uh, relevant literature on those small geographical uh, spread of islands. Uh, but it's been a challenge because uh, a lot of published material are actually uh, very scarce from those small islands so we try as much as possible to to search through uh, whatever literature is available to synthesize and uh, summarize into the into the report and uh, sometimes we have to, Uh, look outside of those geographical focus of small islands just to bring in the relevant uh, information that will help inform uh, the path on the small islands in the report.
0: I'll come back to uh, Professor Howden. Um, Communicating the findings from the scientific reports is obviously important for the general community uh, and our leaders to be aware of the situation. Are you happy with the prominent media coverage that this latest IPCC report has generated? Um, and have you found that the reporting is generally accurate?
1: It's been, uh, I think, very well covered in the media. Um, it's been, uh, particularly the the key messages have been extensively uh, commented on. The challenge, I guess, is converting that coverage into action. and And that's, I think, where the, the media has a ongoing responsibility rather than treating this as a, a 24 hour um, news cycle element and and it's actually delving into uh, the issues that Morgan's raised, um, delving into the issues about uh, what can we do about increasing climate extremes and, and how we can effectively reduce our greenhouse gas emissions in cost effective ways that uh, um, enable rapid action because you do need rapid action in terms of emission reductions. Uh, and but at the same time, we need to recognise that there's many other balls to juggle, such as associated with the coronavirus. So the media, I think, uh, does have a, a really strong ongoing role. Uh, as to whether they will step up to that is uh, a matter for something we will see over the next uh, weeks and months.
0: And Dr. Wairu, have you are you getting a sense that the report findings are also being publicised in the Pacific? Are you seeing Pacific media picking up on, on the report findings?
2: Yes, there's, there's some element of that, of media picking up some of the key messages from the report. But as Mark has alluded to earlier, it's very important that the media keep hammering the message home to, to governments as well as uh, policymakers that uh, the findings of the report are very clear, but how do we translate that into a a message that will influence policy and uh, decisions of the leaders to take drastic action to reduce emissions. So that's the critical issue because if we uh, don't do that, then reports are report, they're always there. They they provide the key message. The The science is clear from those reports, but then, but we are not taking actions because people are not well aware of what needs to be done or people are just uh, ignorant of the real facts behind that, that are provided in the reports.
0: Are you concerned that, you know, with all the the issues around COVID that's going on at the moment, that, that maybe climate change is not being given the sense of urgency that it should be at this point?
2: Yes, there's, there is some uh, uh, element of that as well, that the, the main focus of most countries now is on trying to control the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, and somehow you see the... Climate change issue has been uh, pushed to the side, but you know that in itself, the, the the pandemic itself is also helping out in terms of you know countries reducing their uh, economic activities and reducing some of the gas emissions. But we hope that it doesn't come back when countries recover. And we come back to, to the same level again that we had before the pandemic. So that's something that a message that need to bring home as well, that you know, mm-hmm. uh, there happens a reduction in emissions under the COVID pandemic, but we need to uh, put more effort to ensure that we don't come back up again and, uh, and build on that to reduce more uh, carbon dioxide emissions.
0: Now, over the years, you know, we we know the role that the IPCC has played in, in building the science and communicating that. Do you think the profile of the IPCC has risen across the Pacific? Do you do you get the sense that governments and communities know who the IPCC is now and that it is the peak body around climate
2: science? Yeah, there are some level of awareness about the IPCC, but it's not to the extent as... Uh uh, one would have wished for IPCC uh, reports to be more disseminated uh, across the Pacific Islands. So that's still a gap. And that's one thing that I think the IPCC has considered, you know, rolling out some of its outreach programs to some Pacific Islands so that they know exactly what uh, the essence of those reports and what IPCC can do and help inform policy makers in the Pacific.
0: Right. I mean, media is obviously one way of, of getting these messages across. Is there a role also for, for regional groups like the SPC, for instance, to to do some active education of, of communities in, on this front?
2: Yes. Yeah, so we have some regional organizations like SPC, SPREP, and also the Forum Secretariat uh, doing some of those uh, 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 advocacy role in terms of dissemination information on the climate change. But, you know, we will also need the, the support from the, the media, uh, especially the social media, as well as some of the mainstream media to, to support in that process. And it should be an ongoing thing instead of just reporting on the report as it comes out, as we are witnessing now. But it should be an ongoing process uh, until the next report. Yes that's the only way we can uh, really push through the message to uh, key policymakers.
0: Coming back to you, Professor Howden, were there any surprises in the report for you or anything you think was left out?
1: For me, because I'm you know heavily uh, part of the the science community that generates these reports is that there wasn't a lot of surprises to me. but really importantly, to note, that there's a lot of increased confidence in the results coming from this report. And and I think that's the really important message, is that uh, many of those previously discussed elements about sea level rise have been covered in previous reports. They've been updated. But importantly, now they're much more confident. And and a key part of the confidence uh, increase is that, not only have we got another sort of seven or eight years of data um, to build on and a lot has happened in that seven to eight years we've also got much better ways of collecting the data such as um, in you know collecting salinity and temperature measurements in the ocean and satellites have improved um, but we've also been more effective in reconstructing the long history of the earth you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago the paleo data and bringing that into the assessments um, in this report. And that's what we call multiple lines of evidence. And that increases the confidence we have in any particular statement.
0: So that's coming from things like ice cores in Antarctica and and really being able to read the world's geological record.
1: Yeah, ice cores and things like coral reef, um, when you put cores down into coral reefs, um, looking at sediment layers in the oceans, sediment layers in lakes, um, tree rings, those sorts of things.
0: So I guess, you know, the IPCC team has to walk a very fine line, don't they, between adopting a, a sort of cautious and conservative approach to the science, while at the same time underlining the gravity of the situation too. So that can't be easy, can it?
1: I think one of the key things is maintaining the integrity of the science reports. And and so that's, as a trusted voice in this space, uh, really important to maintain the integrity Inevitably, uh, IPCC reports are always a little bit behind the times um, because the nature of how they're constructed and how they're approved uh, means that the cutting edge science uh, is probably um, two years ahead of where the IPCC reports are. And and so, so they do tend to be slightly conservative. Um, uh, they also do tend to be Um, importantly covering the full range of different evidence and different perspectives on that evidence and then weighing those up and giving that weighted view appropriate um, airing and really importantly um, IPCC reports are essentially a partnership between uh, governments policymakers the science community and increasingly um, the, the public sphere, so the NGOs and, and others uh, who have an interest in the results of these um, uh, the reports. And and because it is that partnership, uh, it needs to take into account many different perspectives. And I think, generally speaking, that's done very effectively through the approval process where those different voices can be heard.
0: Now, Dr Wairu, I wanted to come back to you and, and get a sense of your life and career, since you're likely to be uh, an inspiration for young Pacific Islanders interested in a career in science, uh, especially environmental and climate science, was it considered unusual among your family or your community for you to become a scientist? And and, and what was your inspiration to get into this field?
2: I think for the Pacific and uh, more specifically uh, small island countries, uh, Climate change is a is a critical issue for the for for the island countries, and therefore it's just important that uh, some of us from the Pacific are actually taking a career in this uh, particular field. Because that's important that we document as well as we conduct the relevant research on the ground to inform uh, such reports as IPCC, but also our own governments in terms of what uh, is required and what actions need to be taken in terms of uh, addressing issues of climate change impacts. So there's very little pool of scientists in the Pacific, uh, and we are trying to encourage young uh, upcoming scientists to participate in the process and uh, get involved in the whole IPCC uh, reports. It's not easy because, uh, you know, uh, conducting research, in the Pacific is quite challenging and with resource, uh, resources lacking. Uh, there aren't many people going or taking up a career in this space, but uh, uh, it's just so important for us uh, that the people who are interested in this particular field are, are engaged uh, so that we can contribute to the current knowledge on the impacts of climate change to the Pacific Island countries
0: and just just to get a sketch of uh, of your life where where did you grow up and uh, and how did you first get into science
2: yes yeah, so i've been around in a full circle right now i'm back on malaita doing community work with uh, communities uh, you know supporting them in terms of their adaptation uh, activities to the impact of climate change but uh, yeah so I, before that i came out from the village and uh, managed to get into the academic. So you were born in Malaita in the Solomon Islands? Yes, yes, yes. So so I managed to go through the whole formal education system into the academia and I was at the University of the South Pacific uh, managing the climate change centre at the university and that's how I get involved in the IPCC work and uh, growing some of the climate change leaders in the Pacific. And uh, it's more fulfilling to come back to the village and start supporting, you know, activities that people are doing because they are experiencing the real life impacts of the impact of climate change. And uh, having been in this uh, field in terms of research and uh, actually putting together the evidence uh, for the changing climate and its impact on the communities, it's good to come back to the village and start supporting communities who are trying their very best to adapt
0: come back to that point in a minute but um, yeah just interested to to know you know your career trajectory in a sense so did you you finished high school in Malaita, and then did you go on to the USP in Fiji to, to do a degree in science is that where it all started for you and was this back in the 1980s or 90s?
2: Yes yes that's what in the 1980s and uh, I was fortunate to also study in the UK uh, I did my postgrad uh, diploma and masters uh, at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Uh, and then I went on to do my PhD at the Ohio State University in the US looking particularly at carbon carbon sequestration as, my, as part of my study. Uh, and then I got back and uh, worked with the University of the South Pacific for some time. And we started the program on climate change. We realized and recognized that uh, it's important to start building the, the leadership for climate change in the region and building the capacity to conduct research as well as to look at some of the you know adaptation solutions to the impacts of climate change so we set up the the center the pacific center for environment and sustainable development and the program on climate change and uh, for the last 10 years we've graduated well over 300 masters and phd students from the pacific and the center is continuing to you know to build the capacity and uh, uh, push out some of those graduates working within the government, within some of the regional organisations, and some of the uh, organisations such as NGOs in the region. So it's part of that whole capacity building uh, within the region.
0: Okay, and so for you personally, when did when did you first become aware of climate change and the way it could impact the Pacific and, and indeed the rest of the world?
2: Well, I was aware of the of the IPCC formation way back in the 1980, late 1980s, 88 and that. So I, I took a, a general uh, interest in the IPCC work since then, uh, doing my first degree. So I was following up a lot of IPCC reports and all that. And we... Uh, uh, you know, during the course of time, we we recognize and realize that it's important. We start uh, also contributing to that uh, particular space to inform uh, other, you know, societies uh, globally about what's happening in the Pacific.
0: As you say, you've you've come full circle and you're back in the village in Malaita. Wanted to ask you, what what do you think are some of the really practical things that that communities can do in order to mitigate? What's, what's happening around climate and, and build their resilience
2: as communities? Well, for, for some of the island communities uh, in the Pacific, they have very little choices. So, you know, looking closely at what are the options that they have, you know, the only other option is really relocation, migration to s- some other places where they can build a completely new lifestyle and new communities and that, because they, there's no way they can cope with and remain in the current sites that they are they are living. So that's one issue that uh, we're working on right now in terms of you know what, you know what are the plans for the future, in terms of uh, moving communities to different areas to different places, so that they can start new life in terms of uh, their own livelihood, culture, and uh, their family circles.
0: Professor Howden, just coming back to you, from this latest IPCC report, was there anything in there that you think uh, that put the light bulb on for you in terms of the impact in the Pacific? Were there any particular findings from this report that that you can see is really going to impact the Pacific as a region? For
1: me... There were some additional components in relation to the impacts on the oceans that we haven't covered. Um, So so clearly, uh, climate change will uh, increase sea level rise. Um, uh, If we look at the low emission scenario, it could go up by up to a half a metre by the end of the century. On a high emission scenario, it could go up uh, to a metre by the end of the century. But what the report says is that it can't rule out increases in sea level rise by five metres by the year 2150, um, which, of course, are are huge and, uh, um, you know, threaten uh, many island nations. And so that's a future we don't want to go towards. But the problem with sea level rise is that it's a really slow burn issue. It it can, uh, you know, what we've already stored up is sea level rise over a, in multiple century timeframes. And so even if we take the foot off the climate change accelerator, um, we can still see long, long long-term sea level rise. So that's part of the rationale of why we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions right now um, to avoid those futures. A couple of other things, of course, and Morgan's already mentioned marine heat waves, and we've already seen essentially a doubling of those in the Pacific and uh, and potentially many, many more marine heat waves as we go into the future. And, And of course that reduces the productivity of the Pacific oceans and uh, and, and can impact their, therefore on the livelihoods and, and cultural values of people in the Pacific. But there's two other elements which are going on uh, related to climate change, and that's uh, essentially acidification of the oceans and deoxygenation of the oceans. So acidification occurs because when we um, generate carbon dioxide, round about a quarter of that, it, quarter of every ton of carbon dioxide we emit, say from a coal-fired power station, gets absorbed by the ocean. And in the process it lowers the pH, it makes them more that makes the ocean more acidic. So the ocean is alkaline um, but adding carbon dioxide to it um, reduces the alkalinity. It makes it more acidic. And that has a whole series of impacts, including on the ability of coral reefs uh, to develop. And lastly, is um, deoxygenation. So as the ocean warms up, the the top layer of the ocean warms and it tends to reduce circulation of the ocean and we get um, reduction in oxygen levels. And uh, and so we already see that going on and that's projected to increase in the future. And really importantly, both acidification and deoxygenation are effectively irreversible on human timeframes, just like long-term sea level rise is effectively irreversible on human timeframes. And so, so we really need to be thinking about how our actions right now um, can impact on the Pacific over many, many tens of years, maybe even hundreds of years. And, and that should drive us towards more rapid action to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions.
0: And then I think just finally, let us uh, I'd like to flag that there's another IPCC report coming out in February. Uh, and we'll certainly have a discussion when when that comes out, but what what's your sense of what's in that upcoming report in February? I believe this current one we've just launched really focused on the raw data, the raw science of uh, of climate change, whereas the one in February might be a little bit more useful for policymakers. is that correct
1: yeah so so there's four reports main reports in each IPCC series plus special reports. So as Morgan mentioned, he was a a contributor to the IPCC 1.5 degrees special report. But in the main series, um, what we have is the report which was released last week, which is working group one, which is on the physical science. Then we've got working group two, which is on the impacts adaptation and vulnerability aspects of climate change and Morgan's a coordinating lead author on the small islands chapter in that. And then the third report is the emission reduction report. So how can we go on lower emission pathways for development? And then there's a fourth report, which is the synthesis report, which will be delivered around about this time next year. And that brings all of those different reports together. Now, importantly, in this particular IPCC cycle, we've had three special reports, the 1.5 degrees report, uh, we've had one on climate change and land, and we've also had one on climate change and ocean and the ice-covered areas of the world. So it's been a very active uh, um, assessment period, and, and that means there's a lot of material for the synthesis report to draw on.
0: And Dr Wairu, so just just to, to finish on this point, what, you know, taking the information that's come out of the latest IPCC report, looking ahead to the one in February, Again, I want to just bring it back to, to some of the practical ways the Pacific Island communities and governments can really act on these reports. What 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 are some of the really practical measures you think that that your communities in the Pacific can be taking with this science to build resilience in the future?
2: Yes, so like I said earlier, uh, what is most of interest to the Pacific Island leaders is what are the likely uh, impacts, project impacts of those climate drivers in the future and the risks involved. So those are important to inform decision makers and also for planning purposes and what practical actions that need to be taken in terms of what are the adaptation solutions that need to be uh, taken uh, by leaders. So in this report, we also look at what are the feasibility of the adaptation options so that the leaders can also be aware of those uh, options that are available to them to adopt and use in terms of their planning to address the impacts of climate change.
0: Okay, I'd like to thank both of our guests today, Professor Mark Howden from ICEDS here at the ANU and Dr Morgan Wairu, who's beaming into us this morning from the Solomon Islands. Thank you both very much for joining the Pacific Wayfinder and look forward to coming back to you when, uh, when we see the next IPCC report. Thanks very much. That wraps up another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. You can find us on our website, pacificsecurity.net, and our Facebook page for the Australia Pacific Security College. Our theme music is the song Tabaran by Not Drowning Waving. And thanks to Liam Taylor for producing this episode. I'm Ben Bohain. Tune in next time to the Pacific Wayfinder.